you want to give love to the city, that's a fact. But you're going to need help if you want to make an impact. Well endowed, you want to be well endowed with the Edmonton community. Things really happen when you find that you're well endowed. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Well Endowed podcast. I'm Elizabeth Bonkink, and today I get to share a mic with a special guest host. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, yeah. I'm Gladys Bugayong. I'm working as an investment analyst with Edmonton Community Foundation for almost five years now. I'm reporting directly to the CFO. I am responsible for accounting for investment-related transactions. Yeah. So what do you do when you're not at ECF? I'm also uh, keen with supporting some organization like UNCOP. Actually, we have UNCOP walk on August 24. If you could join, then please register. What is UNCOP? Oh, that's answering the cry of the poor. Yeah, where can we find more information on that? You can find it at uncopcanada.org. We would love to see you there. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started. Oh, yeah, my pleasure. So this podcast is brought to you by Edmonton Community Foundation. And we are proud affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Edmonton is full of generous donors who have created endowment funds at ECF. These funds generate money to support charities in Edmonton and beyond. On this podcast, we share stories from the spaces where endowments and communities intersect. Because it's good to be well endowed. Let's begin the show with another installment of our history series from Chris Chang and Phillips. Today, we're going to learn about the Mercer Warehouse. Right. The Mercer Warehouse on 104th Street is kind of iconic. It's right across from the arena and the Neon Sign Museum. It's got cool restaurants inside and Startup Edmonton, an incubator for local businesses. But have you ever wondered about what the building used to be? What all those names on the side of the building mean? Our correspondent Chris Chang Yen Phillips found out. Uh, so uh, I'm here at the Mercer Warehouse um, with somebody who works in the Mercer Warehouse because I want to uh, just share some cool stuff about the building. So uh, would you mind explaining uh, who you are and uh, what you do here? Uh, hi, I'm Gazim. I work out of Startup Edmonton and I've been here for a couple of years. I'm working on a startup called Commerce Owl. What does Commerce Owl do? We help e-commerce food and beverage stores that are uh, wanting to get better marketing. So our first platform is called uh, is called Sell With Recipes. We help them publish recipes. So we're in this kind of like uh, place where startup businesses can um, have, have a spot to incubate, but also mix and mingle a little bit. And it's in a building with a lot of history. Yeah, there is a lot of history. The floor is creaky. <laughs> So um, I got I got five things for you um, that hopefully I'll be able to wow you with. Here's fact one about the Mercer Warehouse that hopefully you've never heard this before. Um, we know the building is called the Mercer Warehouse, but do you know what they were first warehousing here? Uh, so before I answer that, I hope ghosts are related to this somehow because I've heard about ghosts. <laughs> uh, but no, uh, I don't know. Um, there's a sign out back somewhere that says like fruits and vegetables and I think it's false advertising because I don't see any fruits and vegetables here, but uh, yeah, I don't really know what's, what it was about. Fruits and vegetables um, did come along at a point in the building's lifespan, but it was actually first started by J.B. Mercer. Um, he had the building built in 1911 um, because he had a liquor business um, and a cigar business on Jasper Ave. Um, so he wanted a warehouse to store some of his stuff. He was also the local distributor for the Calgary Brewing Company. So they were 
storing stuff here too. Ah, cool. So here's a second a wild fact. Um, so JB Mercer had this liquor store on White Ave. One of the wildest things that he was stocking in 1911 is he sold olives and cherries at his liquor store. Oh, that's really interesting. So they somehow, yeah. Uh, I don't drink, but I, do those things go together? Cherries and liquor? Olives and cherries are both things that you would want in a drink, potentially. Maybe not together. I don't know if I've ever had <laughs> together. Um, but yeah, I found a, an Edmonton Bulletin article, a newspaper from 1911, that mentions that he kept them in stock for making punches and fancy drinks. It seemed weird to me reading that there would be fruit available at a liquor store at that time, and I thought maybe it was like preserved fruit, but apparently Edmontonians were wild for fresh fruit at the time. I read this other article interviewing an unnamed fruit merchant here in the city. <laughs> Mystery fruit merchant number one. <laughs> Chose to be anonymous. Um, who said that people in Edmonton are great fruit eaters, no mistake. And uh, the... the <laughs> right? Um, so this reporter, he went into the shop and he saw someone leaving with like a handful of a big bunch of bananas and uh, the, on the other hand, a couple pounds of cherries. <laughs> Um, and apparently we were getting apples from BC and Ontario and Oregon here and California cherries. Wow, that's interesting. So I have uh, some history with cherries. Um, I don't like the California cherry part because um, I used to work for a food truck and we got BC cherries and we're very proud about that. <laughs> so we do take our fruit very seriously. <laughs> um, okay, uh, one other business here um, that, that was here in the 1910s was a customs examining warehouse. So these are the people who like sees stuff at customs um, oh so oh this is blowing my mind now because the what's the the canadian border security agency is just literally next door yeah so that's kind of stuck around yeah just still in the box. <laughs> yeah wow um and uh i found uh, a little story about an, an auction that was held in 1914 because just like today you know, they seize all this stuff that people um, <laughs> like bring through the border. Um, so, okay, sorry to interrupt. Funny story about seizing stuff over the border because, again, the links, links to fruit. And this one time I actually was bringing stuff, apples from California, into Canada, and I couldn't bring them in. So I was sitting there at the, at the little uh, immigration thing, and I was eating apples as they were examining our bags because they could throw them away anyway. <laughs> But the, it would have been nice if the apples actually went to good use into an auction. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not far off because this was the weird thing I found about this auction in 1914. So this auctioneer, Robert Smith, he's selling off some of the seeds and unclaimed goods. And apparently some of the stuff he sold that day was um, a case of coats, a silver looking teapot, and some lady bought 23 bags of figs. Oh, wow. That could have been my figs, damn it. <laughs> Okay, I got two more. This one's a trick question. How many floors are on this building? Um, oh, that's always trick. Well, it feels weird because when you come up, up on the second floor, it's, and then you go to the third, it's kind of like, so technically three, but I bet you there's more. So this is why it's a trick question because there are three today, but there were four before what uh, the Edmonton Bulletin called a cyclonic fire in 1922. Ooh, wow. Yeah, it gutted the warehouse um, in about 20 minutes. Apparently part of the reason it was so bad um, was because there was a paint company up here um, that were storing like varnishes and paints and stuff. Um, it started at like 6.15 in the morning. Somebody who was delivering papers apparently spotted it, and spotted some flash upstairs on the third floor, ran over to the railway office across the street, 
call the fire department. Um, but uh, I just want to show you a picture of what this fire Ooh, looked like. Exciting. Oh, wow. It kind of looks like it was burned by a dragon or something, right? That's, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. You're putting words in my mouth, but <laughs> fair <laughs> enough. I could see the top, how it was like completely scraped. And oh, wow, it looks really interesting. At the time, they described it as looking like uh, a building that had been bombed on the Western Front, because this was just after Yeah, that checks out for sure. Whew. Whoa. Yeah, that's giving me shivers. Yeah. Um, so they, when they rebuilt it, they didn't rebuild the fourth floor. They built it only to three. Oh, interesting. Okay, last thing. Um, do you think that J.B. Mercer, the name, the guy who this whole building is named after, do you think he stuck around long enough to see all this go down? Huh. I wasn't thinking about him as we were seeing the story develop, but I'm going to say no. Correct. In 1912, apparently, he and his wife peaced out. They moved to Honolulu. Oh, <laughs> clever guy. <laughs> Um, the society pages say that both of them had been in ill health lately, um, so they decided to make a permanent home in Hawaii. Uh, before that, they were apparently fixtures in the curling and bridge scenes here, um, and it looks like their daughter uh, was instantly, quote, a guest of honor at a number of smart affairs in Honolulu um, because she got engaged and uh, she made plans to come back to Edmonton to, to get married. <laughs> Okay, that's pretty good trivia. I like that. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> that was Chris Chang Yen Phillips with a little Mercer's Warehouse trivia for you. Thanks to Gezem Hoja for being a good sport for that story. Before we head into our next story, we just want to give a quick reminder for our community grants. If you are interested in applying, the next due date is September 1st. Community Grants supports the needs of charitable organizations. They are versatile and can be up to $50,000. You can find out more at ecfoundation.org or by checking out our show notes. So Gladys, what do we have up next? Next, we're excited to introduce you all to Kevin Stewart. Kevin resides in Vegreville and has dedicated himself to better understanding the wilderness that surrounds him through photography and research. He is also active in taking steps to protect that wilderness. As he describes himself, he is a man who dreams of bison roaming the prairies again. Kevin sat down with Andrew Paul to talk about photography, how he sort of won the Nobel Peace Prize, and the fun he created to help protect the Aspen Parklands of Vagrubel. Let's take a listen. Welcome to the Well Endowed Podcast, Kevin. It's Hi. great to have you. Hi, thanks. <laughs> uh, so I kind of just wanted to go back and find out when uh, you started becoming interested in environmental activism uh, in general. Uh, did you grow up in the country with like a love of, you know, the natural outdoors or? Well, small town, Vagerville, small town. That's where I spent, well, born in Portage of the Prairie. Moved to Cold Lake before I can remember, before my memories start, <laughs> and then the day after grade one <laughs> to Vegreville, so kind of mostly Vegreville. Small town, there's like, you can just ride your bike for a few minutes and you're out of town. <laughs> right. And just, and then there was also like small little areas in town. And yeah, just kind of like always interested in animals. It's like I don't remember anything else. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, plants and butterflies, and but then there's kind of like two cartoons that corrupted me. Okay, which which were uh, the Lorax, yes, <laughs> and uh, the Pine Stock USA episode of the Jackson Five show. 
okay. in which uh, Michael and his friends sabotage a logging camp. <laughs> <laughs> so the show sort of plants a little bit of the the seeds yeah. uh, for you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So growing up with like an appreciation of uh, natural lands and yeah. was there a moment that that sort of uh, enthusiast um, sort of approach to, you know, these places are beautiful and should be protective. Uh, was there a moment where uh, the activism switch was really turned on for you? I well, it was kind of always there, uh, kind of like uh, kind of like knowing about endangered species and everything. And then going to university and getting a degree and kind of like being unemployed and and recovering from a knee injury uh and the internet was kind of really starting mm -hmm. like or kind of the internet as we know it now was starting uh, i'd been online for about 10 years at this point any before right but uh kind of like the ability to just kind of go and do searches and everything uh i'd heard uh somewhere i'm not sure that a gorilla got killed by a landmine in Rwanda uh, named Nkono. And it was like, okay, find out more and kind of just say nobody seems to be looking into the impact of landmines on animals. So I kind of went, okay, I'm not doing anything. I've got access to this internet thing. <laughs> uh, I'll start looking and see what I could find just so I could start going, hey, look, I'm actually interested in this and uh, managed to find six reports okay. and uh, said, okay, I'm going to go see what the other people s say if they have anything. And they kind of went, oh, you're the expert. <laughs> uh, so they started sending anybody with questions they started sending them to me okay. <laughs> and uh yeah just kind of like i started like okay and i just that just kind of fueled what i was doing and i was like hey wait i'm actually doing something <laughs> uh yeah and this was like the point where there's like uh the campaign for to ban landmines was gaining momentum right right and uh next thing i know it's like i uh wake up to hear that uh, 1997 Nobel Peace Prize was won by uh, Jody Williams and the International Campaign to Ban Landmines. And I'm on the bus later that day, and it's like, wait, I'm in the campaign. I won the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> <laughs> Me and thousands of others won the Nobel Peace Prize. Me and tens of thousands of others won the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I did get an email the next day kind of going, congratulations, we won from Jody Williams. Right, right. <laughs> it was a bulk email, but uh, <laughs> I, I did eventually meet her. She gave a talk in the city, and uh, I did get her to autograph a report she had written on uh, landmines. <laughs> oh, there we go. <laughs> Uh, so you also co-authored a paper called Animal Casualties of the Underground War, uh, and this was a couple of years after the Nobel Prize. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that that paper? Uh, well, more of an article for a magazine, and okay. then it got uh, later put into a book. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was basically, I got contacted by a writer uh, who worked on animal rights issues and saying, hey, you should get a, 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 write an article on this. And it's like, okay, uh, 
I'm really bad at writing. He goes, well, just use your research and give you, you'll get credited everything. And it's like, I think I wrote like a sentence in the article, but uh, it was basically all my research that went into it. Right, yeah. right. And then you were subsequently uh, interviewed by the New York Times, I, I hear, uh, as well for, for that. Uh, yeah, and AP. And mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I've been interviewed several times on it, uh, even the Vegreville Observer. So you really know you've made it when the hometown paper uh, interviews you. Hey, you know, I think that the hometown papers are one of the most important publications uh, that exist yeah <laughs> yeah today, you know? it, it was also founded by al horton who was a real badass <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> he was like completely deaf and took on the ku klux klan and chased them out of victorville <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna have to yeah. go look up that story that yeah. uh that is yeah. really badass oh, yeah they yeah. Uh, threatened to burn down his building and he said i he published a letter front page and said, go ahead. I need a new building. <laughs> <laughs> the building's still standing. <laughs> well, it sounds like the, the 90s were like a really um, exciting time for you. Uh, there seemed to be like a lot happening. And this is also uh, around the time where you were diagnosed with Stargardt disease as well. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so when you're doing all this research, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about what Stargardt disease is, but, um, you know, being able to read and, you know, absorb all of this information and then uh, distribute it out to where it needs to go as, you know, the resident expert yeah. uh, on landmines and, and animals. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that diagnosis and how that impacted your activism? Actually, it didn't really impact it that much because mm-hmm. uh, I got in it a couple of years earlier. I kind of noticed that my vision was getting worse. Kind of went, go, okay, there is something wrong here. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it was just kind of like, uh, but the computer, I can make the text bigger or I can have like really high contrast if needed. And uh, yeah, and then there's the control and the wheel on the mouse now, which yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I get bugged at work. It's like, oh, we can tell when you've used the computer <laughs> as people are reading it from across the uh, building. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's uh, just more that it's it, it's in fact it's kind of like long term has impacted my reading ability simply mm-hmm. because I can't really sit down and read books normally anymore. Uh, I I recently got an iPad and I found that that's like greatly improving things. So it's. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so with this, I'm just mainly inc- uh, interested in, like, when did photography start becoming a passion of yours? I wasn't so much photography became a passion for me. It was more I want to identify these plants. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and since I can't really see them in the field, I could take pictures of them, take them home, blow them up, and get a better look at them. Right, right. <laughs> And so I wound up, uh, there was like a reward program at work and I got, got myself this cheap little camera, like a digital camera, Olympus, yay, Olympus. <laughs> <laughs> and I uh, just kind of said, okay, I'm going to take some photos and you just kind of do this. And then, well, Facebook came around and it's like, okay, I could post some of these photos there. And people started going, so are you a professional photographer? <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, no <laughs> and just kind of just like just kept doing it and kept getting better and better at it simply because the secret is take a lot of photos <laughs> right <laughs> yeah my, my record is i think it's 806 in about a five-hour period yeah, yeah. That's, that's a few that's a few <laughs> <Yeah>. photos 
<laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, people don't see all the garbage. <laughs> well, that's, you know, it's okay if things just stay on the cutting room floor yeah. and not see the light of day. <laughs> yeah. Here, yeah. Here's, uh, okay, delete all the blurry ones <laughs> that are out of focus, that they're not centered. Just, and it's like, here's one. Wow. How could you get such a great shot? <laughs> it's like, I, I once uh, spent uh, about, 15 minutes lying on my stomach and just slowly creeping forward to get a ground squirrel photo. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and uh, there was like one or two good ones out of 64 pictures. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so photography also ties into, you know, like where are you shooting these photos? And maybe we can tie this a little bit into uh, going back to your hometown of Agerville and maybe some of the areas out there. Yeah, all the number one place well that i like to go is uh i, I call pussy toast springs because there's uh pussy toast are a uh a, a native plant that uh kind of in the uh, aster family okay and they grow really low to the ground and except for when they go into flower they send up a stem with like this little inflorescence that when it goes to seed it looks like a kitten's paw hence the name pussy toe <laughs> and they could be well, you can get them like uh, three feet across, but they're flat. <laughs> right. Yeah, and there's this spring out on Friend's Farm that is surrounded by pussy toes. So it's pussy toe spring. <laughs> yeah, just kind of like I've been going out there since he got it in the uh, really early uh, 90s. Okay. And just kind of getting to know, know it more and more and kind of going, hey, I've never seen this plant out there. Or kind of going, hey, it's a bug that I've never seen before. And... Uh, last year, I got photos of badgers. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like uh, I'm kind of walking along uh, the creek, and I see this movement in uh, the cattails, and I hear a... <laughs> like, okay, get my camera out. <laughs> and, uh, it's like... And then these two badgers pop out, and it's like I start going click, 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 click. And I, I managed to get a couple of good ones, including one where it's like, You're next. They are quite ornery. Yeah. Uh, suckers, yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah, I was I was at a fairly safe distance. <laughs> Highly advisable. Don't try this at home, kids. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, okay, so let's go back to Pussy Toe Springs uh, and some of the areas that are around Vagerville. Why do you want to preserve them? Um, and why do they need to be preserved? What are they adding to sort of the ecosystem of Alberta and how do they fit into maybe the larger picture of the area? Well, uh, grasslands are one of the most threatened ecosystems in the world. And uh, the Aspen Parkland region, which is uh, the southern part of the transition from prairie to boreal forest, is... Uh, one of the most impacted. There's less than 10% left, if, and that's probably an overestimate. Uh, it's been plowed up uh, for agriculture and uh, other impacts like loss of bison, uh, loss of beavers, loss of ground squirrels have also severely impacted it. And it's there. There's very few large tracks, and even like things like Elk Island Park, there's lots of invasive uh, plants in there. Right. You go by there, and it's like, hey, here's all the owl clover, which is invasive, and uh, you can't really see what it was like. And this is like an eco region that goes from uh, BC mm -hmm. uh, through the prairie provinces, and then a bit into uh, North Dakota and uh, Minnesota. Uh, but there's so little left 
that uh, it's kind of really hard. You, you can't really go out like, hey, this is what it used to be. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, there's like one or two national parks, but uh, there isn't anything that's really expansive that kind of go, hey, look. <laughs> right. And so how big is this area around Vegreville that is still untouched? Uh, quote, I'd say unquote. Re relatively untouched. Rel yeah, yeah. Uh, there's some evidence of like there's a pipeline in there and right. uh, there's I know there's a couple of oil wells. Uh, there's uh, kind of two sections. Uh, the uh, northern section is approximately 80 acres. And then the other section is maybe 20 to 40. It's located on two quarter sections, so 320 uh, uh, altogether. Right, right. Uh, 320 acres altogether. But there, there's also like a, uh, yeah, kind of like a nice little creek that depending on how, where the water table is, how uh, deep it is. And it flows into uh, the Vermilion River over about, okay. uh, I've, I've tried to figure out how, large in air how much it covers and it's about 12 to 13 quarter sections so okay. I, I eventually i'd love to get the whole one whole uh watershed of this creek restored <laughs> right right yeah uh what's feeding the creek is it the spring or? uh it's a lot of it's meltwater okay uh, if you go out there when it's when the snow's melting it is uh it, it's it's quite active mm -hmm. uh, yeah but then there, there's also the spring kind of uh joins in okay gotcha right yeah because right. there's uh it goes for at least half a mile before it hits the spring and right. there's a couple small streams that join up and it's also kind of connects a bunch of wetlands too yeah so it's kind of one of these things where it's like where does the creek what's the creek what's the wetland <laughs> <laughs> yeah so like you know 300 plus acres is not a lot like that's no. at all um and i'm wondering like is this privately owned land um yes yeah and who who owns it uh my best friend from high school uh, maybe you can tell us a little <laughs> bit of them are they are they also uh as passionate as you are about protecting the natural lands uh there or uh i was an influence on them so it, it is somewhat protected but things change so it's uh it's kind of a i've told them that if he ever wants to sell it talk to me mm -hmm. <laughs> first yeah and uh, this is one of these other reasons why I want to like start getting things set up, like with the fund and everything, is that uh, why wait for the emergency when it's like, okay, I'm selling this, you need to raise money quickly, when it's like, hey, let's get something in place mm -hmm. so that as opportunities arise, uh, because there's other ones, like there's the old gun range, mm -hmm. uh, which isn't that big. It's possible to convince the person to say hey we can like <laughs> make some sort of arrangement so to turn it into like this nature like a butterfly sanctuary right right uh and it also has like uh the the vermilion river does go through it and mm -hmm. uh yeah just kind of like if the opportunity arises it's better to be able to go hey we've got something set up than uh, try to scramble and get everything done at once when there's like uh like that, that pendulum which is always hanging over every natural area. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, your fund and what you're hoping to achieve with it. Uh, well, it's kind of like a phase one of my plans. Mm -hmm. uh, number one th thing is that when you, if you want to protect an area, you have to be able to do things like 
pay the taxes. Mm -hmm. uh, you need insurance so that someone goes out there, gets hurt, and says, I'm going to sue you. <laughs> uh, other things like uh, what's out there. Uh, one of the things I would love to do is get the fund to the point where I could have like a, a grant for uh, students at the university to go, here's some grant money, go out and find out what beetles live in this area. Right, right. Uh, what plants, what mushrooms, yeah, what water mites. <laughs> uh, I have talked to somebody about water mites out there and is in yeah. interested. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, just like uh, there's so much diversity out there that's still there mm -hmm. uh, that uh, it's a matter of going, hey, look what's here. <laughs> well, there's what's a concept called plant blindness, okay. where plants are basically just these things in the background. Right. and. Uh, just kind of overlook them but once you start going hey let's what's going on in here and uh i kind of like one day i kind of went let's see i put down my hand and went okay what's here and i counted five kinds of plants right yeah like five <laughs> different species by just putting my hand down in the area covered by my hand and uh yeah compare that with a uh like the monocultures that surround it where there's mm -hmm. areas where you can like go, hey, I'm going to lie down here and roll over and uh, not even touch a plant because right. <laughs> it's been, uh, the soil's been degraded and it's... Yeah, or, or it'll be, you know, yeah, those agricultural monocultures, yeah. uh, like canola or yeah. soy or, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> you know? And, it, and just sections and sections of that uh, yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so when you're looking at uh, your, your long-term plan here and your grand vision... Yeah. What are some of the things that uh, need to be would need to be done to the spaces to uh, return them back to their as natural as possible states? Uh, well, one uh, like replanting. Mm -hmm. well, first of all, you need to be able to say, okay, we free the land from the agriculture. <laughs> That's going to be the biggest thing is uh, freeing the land, and then the land will heal itself. Uh, but uh, it's good to help things along by uh, like have being able to like reseed and. Also, pull out the invasives. Uh, there's like lots out there. Like yep. uh, I know there, there's a there's a patch of tansy. There's a patch of canada thistle, which is like the invasive species, unlike the floodman's thistle, which is also out there. Which is uh, I don't think it's on the endangered list yet, <laughs> but okay. it's uh, fairly rare. Actually, there's one out there that I kind of would go out every year and kind of go, okay, it's so bad that you're alone. And uh, I kind of went out there a bit later, and it's like, oh, you've got a family with you. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> it was always like the first one to come up. And then uh, there's like about 100 <laughs> surrounding this uh <laughs> Yeah, surrounding this guy. It's like, just, it's like, yay, there's more of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then also, you were talking about repairing the watershed as well. Yeah. Um, what goes into repairing a watershed? Um, like, what is that? What does that actually mean? Ah, well, for the context of Pussy Toe Spring, the main things would be there's an old car that needs to be pulled out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'd like to get the dugouts filled in. Mm -hmm. uh, also get cattle off the land because <laughs> right. they go in and they just stir everything up. Ideally get bison back. Yeah. Yeah. And allow the beavers to kind of like be beavers. <laughs> yes. They know what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's, uh, yeah. Beavers are ecosystem engineers. They're... Uh, basically, they, they transform the landscape, and they've been here for millions of years, and, and since the last glaciation, about 9,000 years. Mm -hmm. 
where it's kind of like, hey, I'm going to build the dam here, backs up water, sediment collects, nutrients collect, and then they kind of move on, and then it's their succession, and then they come along and go, okay, hey, I, lots of good trees here. <laughs> and just by having beavers, everything else improves. <laughs> yes, yeah. Yeah. It's... <laughs> well, I think next to people, beavers are probably – the most large scale, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. engineers of their of their ecosystems yeah. in space. Yeah. Yeah. And also uh, uh, ground squirrels are needed, too, because uh, ground squirrels, one of the things ground squirrels do, uh, besides providing habitat for other animals to gather plants, they kind of keep the soil turned up. Mm -hmm. uh, they also uh, help water get down to the water table. Yeah. <laughs> and they recharge wetlands and... Uh, <laughs> Something that I've heard that I need to learn more about is that there's actually tides on the prairie. Oh, really? Yeah. As the kind of the moon passes over, the groundwater rises. And sometimes the ground squirrel burrows are just enough to kind of have some of the water come up. Oh, <laughs> oh that's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so in this plan, in this grand scheme, um, yeah. How do organizations like the Edmonton Area Land Trust, uh, how might they play a role in something like this? Uh, well, they, being a land trust, they are able to, like, buy properties and then help in the management and long-term management. Right. Yeah, as opposed to being going, hey, I got this land, and then, okay, I've, I've got maybe 40 years left if I'm lucky. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, where something like a land trust will be around for much longer than anybody involved in it. We need to start thinking generationally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or as I even put it, uh, assuming that we don't totally screw up the climate, uh, there's going to be an ice age in somewhere between 15 to 50,000 50, years. So we need, should be thinking on that time scale, too, where it's like, okay, yes, here, we're going to protect this area, even though we know that in tens of thousands of years, another glacial come over destroy it but by keeping all the the plants and animals there uh they will be able to move south and then recolonize and <laughs> and even and that's kind of short-term thinking but <laughs> <laughs> paleontology background okay, right right <laughs> yeah, that ten thousand years that's just the blink of an eye <laughs> yeah well we have what about five i don't know how many millions or billions of years but eventually the sun will expand oh, yeah. and swallow us and then that'll be you know the end of the plan right yeah yeah <laughs> so around that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah depending i've heard various estimates like uh like a billion to uh four billion years but it's still it's like the plants animals fungus uh soil microbes bacteria we all share about a four billion year history of evolution where we're we're all related And it's very hard to kind of separate, <laughs> which it just we could go, okay, yes, we're one species, but we're uh, we're just half of a, half of our cells or more aren't human, <laughs> just because that's what we are. We're like everything is connected. Yeah, absolutely. Well, like our gut bacteria yeah. and you know all that good stuff. Yes. Yeah, I always say, kind of say, yeah, I I like my face spiders. <laughs> <laughs> They are nice. Yeah, They are very nice. Yeah, Dermadex mites, <laughs> yeah. face spiders. <laughs> All the arachnophobes are now... <laughs> Clawing at their face. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, is there anything else that you might like to chat about uh, before our time is up here? Every square foot counts. Mm -hmm. 
we're losing so much is being lost. Like right now we're in the middle of the insect apocalypse yeah. where I remember as a kid, there'd be lots of bugs <laughs> on the windshield Yes, yep. and where have they all gone? And, uh, a lot of it, there's kind of like two, well, there's two kinds of habitats. There's source habitats and there's sink habitats. Source habitats are the ones that are like perfect for any organism. They go, this is like the best place to be. And they reproduce and spread out their offspring and they go into the sink habitats where it's not the best. So depending on the year, there's, they may do really well, but they might not. But as long as the source habitats are there, right. they're going to keep getting recharged. Mm -hmm. And those source habitats can be really small. And an example is uh, the Rocky Mountain locust, which there's like stories of like these clouds of locusts coming over and like eating all the crops and everything. And uh, they, they vanished about 100 years ago. Uh, and it's because people started moving into the mountain valleys where they, which was their source habitat. Mm. Those got plowed up and their source habitat disappeared. So the whole species disappeared. There were like swarms of billions right the few little source habitats disappeared and the species disappeared wow yeah and uh, we don't know what the source habitats are for most most species and it's could be there could like pussytoe spring the old gun range jameson lake which is like this wetland out by uh another farm uh, that my friend has and uh Karen Lake, and there's lots of little other ones. Mm -hmm. uh, if those disappear uh, because somebody goes, hey, I'm going to spray herbicide on this because that'll improve these invasive uh, grasses that for forage, or <laughs> I can make more money growing canola, so mm -hmm. I'll plow this area up. And it could be like, we don't know what we could lose. It's uh, crocuses could disappear. <laughs> Right. Yeah, the, uh, the the provincial plant of Manitoba, provincial flower of Manitoba, could easily disappear, just because a few little places vanish. Yeah. And yeah, and uh, the other thing is, is that there's an estimate uh, by uh, Michael Rosenzweig, who teaches biogeography and has actually written a textbook on biogeography. And basically, for every one percent loss of habitat worldwide, there's a one percent loss of biodiversity. Wow, is it a one to one? Yeah, uh, and right now we're looking at mm, there. There's the uh, one goal of having seventeen percent protected, which means that that's eighty three percent that we're willing to like lose. That's <laughs> yeah. So every place counts, right? And uh, yeah, the good news is that if we actually start protecting and restoring, we could even reverse climate, the climate chaos that's happening. The calculations are coming out and saying, hey, if we restore these habitats, uh, like right now, Aspen Parkland ha area, uh, each acre can store somewhere between 50 to 200 tons of carbon. Right. You multiply that out over the fact that there's millions that could be mm -hmm. changed, like restored. And uh, it's like kind of just by going, okay, we're going to convert what we eat from uh, beef cattle fed and feedlots to grass fed bison. Mm -hmm. 
and on restored prairie and you don't have to give up burgers and you can actually help reverse the damage that we've done with all the burning of fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We only have to remove about 350 gigatons. And, uh, <laughs> it's doable. Right, <laughs> and right. uh, even though it's like this may sound seem like a small project, it's part of the solution. And we need the more people going, hey, I can do my little bit. Mm-hmm. We can actually change, turn things around and uh, stop the apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much to Kevin Stewart for sharing his time with us. If you'd like to find out more about Kevin, you can check out our Legacy in Action article called Vegreville's Own Lorax. We'll have the link in our show notes, along with more information about the Vegreville Creek and Wetlands Fund that he created here at Edmonton Community Foundation. Well, listeners, that brings us to the end of the show. Gladys, thanks so much for hosting with me. It was fun. And thanks to everyone out there for listening. If you'd like this episode, be sure to share it with your friends. And if you have time, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews are a big help. You can follow us on Facebook, too. That's a good place to see pictures and share your thoughts. Thanks again for hanging out with us. We've been your hosts, Elizabeth Bonking and Gladys Bugayang. Until next time! The Well-Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation and is an affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. The show is edited by Lisa Pruden. You can visit our website at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter at The ECF. Our theme music is by Octavo Productions. And as always, don't forget to visit Edmonton Community Foundation at ecfoundation.org. Well-Endowed.